and for any to flatter themselves with being Christian while partaking in the vanities, recreations, and customs of the world is to mock the great God and abuse their immortal souls. The Christian life is quite another thing. William Penn from his book, No Cross, No Crown. This is the Ohio Yearly Meeting Conservative Reading Presentation and Study of William Schuin's The True Christian's Faith and Experience, session number five. We left off in the middle of the third preface to this work, and we will continue with that today. What I have been doing is translating the work into modern English as best as I can as we go along, and then making comments, amplifying as well as then asking for comments or if there are any questions or whatever from everyone here. We are on the third preface, again on page 21, something by way of caution and warning to the titular Christian, the Christian in name only, to whose hand this following treatise, this work may come. We left off on page 23. I do want to remind everyone that Quakers were being severely persecuted at this time, so when he's speaking to these Christians in name only, he's oftentimes speaking to those who are persecuting Quakers. And some of the persecution was very severe. You could be spoiled. You could have all your property taken away from you, as well as being put into prison. So you need to keep that in mind when you are reading or hearing what he is saying to such nominal Christians of his time. I'm just going to reread the last short paragraph from last week on page 23. So, in short, if you are not a partaker and possessor of the heavenly treasures in your own body, you are freighted, you are weighed down with earthly, with worldly treasures and vanities. If you do not know or experience your body to be the temple of the living God and your heart is thrown, then it is a cage for unclean birds and a habitation for wild beasts and a nest for venomous creeping things. And the prince of darkness, Satan, sits upon the throne of your heart and rules there. Let your opinion and talk of religion be whatever it will. I want to again remind everyone that almost in every phrase, every sentence, there are direct or indirect allusions to phrases from the Bible. And I'm not just talking about those that he points out. In just what we read here, you can look up all these phrases and you'll see that they do occur somewhere in the Bible. Okay, let's continue with the next section. Again, we're speaking to the nominal Christian. And I myself oftentimes feel like a Christian in name only when I read what he is saying and where I myself need to go. Now, be warned and advised to watch against that spirit in yourself which moves you to slight, deride, and mock at the appearance and manifestation of the light, the grace, the spirit, the power, the word, and the law of God within. He's speaking to those anti-Quakers, but what we have here, as we had earlier, is this litany of various concepts that are all related. We're basically talking about the same spiritual guide within, whether we see it as the light of Christ within, the grace, the aid of God within, the spirit, the power, especially here, the word that should be capitalized if we were doing this in modern English print, the word of God within, God expressing himself within, and the law of God within. 
what the early Christians would be speaking to in terms of looking at the law of Moses, the outward law of Moses, that the law of God within is a much more powerful type of regulation that will get us somewhere closer to the Lord. Any comments there? Well, this seems to be a mention of a bad spirits within people, a spirit in oneself which has this bad influence. Going back to the former paragraph, just for a moment, if we could, I noticed that he says that if you don't explicitly know your body to be a temple of the living God, if you don't explicitly know these things, that your heart is his throne, then it's this terrible thing. So it's not enough that you just are living your life and not doing anything in particular that's bad. It's that you actually have to actively know yourself to have this way of being. And not having that knowledge puts you in a really bad state. So these just seem to be important paragraphs. Yes. Also, that word know is in its biblical sense, meaning to experience. If you don't experience your body to be that temple of the living God where God lives, and your heart, your inner essence to be his throne, then your body is a cage for unclean birds and so forth. So it's not just a matter of action. It's, it's not, not just a matter of academic kind of knowing or superficial outward knowing. It's really experienced. Whenever you see that word know in a biblical sense, you should think of that, especially when we're reading Shuin and other early Quakers. And also, it's not just a matter of how you behave, because I think that people tend to think that if they're not doing anything in particular that's horrible, then that's fine. But there's more that's required. Anyone else? Okay. This next paragraph is perhaps the most important paragraph in this third preface, and one of the most important in the whole of the three prefaces. So we probably need to take some time to go through this. I'll try to go through this slowly. And learn to cease also from those teachers without, those outward, those worldly religious teachers who have caused you to err, those who hate the light within and despise its shining, look down on its shining, and give it, again, we're talking, this is probably what he was experiencing from these religious teachers of his time, and give it despicable names, such as Ignis Fatuus, a Latin term, uncertain or unsure or false fire. They might call it a natural light rather than a supernatural light, as we understand this light of Christ within and the checks and reproofs of it, but the checks of a natural conscience. So that again, it's something that is divine, it's not divine, as this light is that we are talking about, the grace that we're talking about, the word of God within that we're talking about. And they despise the grace that appears to all men. So many of these words are right from the Bible. They despise that grace, that aid that has appeared to everyone, and they call it just a common grace and not a saving grace. And they slight and reject the power and spirit of God within us, which moves and works against all evil and for all good, not allowing it to be the principal rule and guide of a Christian, true Christian. Any comments there before we go on? Yes, yeah, so often the religionist is following a set of rules that may be determined by whatever sect they belong to. So they're not really following the spirit within, which is what Shewan's pointing towards. Yes. And also, I often encounter people nowadays who tout the Bible as their ultimate authority and, again, discount the spirit. 
that gave forth the words that are in the Bible. We will be getting there very shortly, what you're sure. saying there, Conrad, because this is the point he makes. It's no different today than it was then. This inward spirit, the supernatural agent or agency, depending on how you look at it, as grace, as supernatural light, as divine spirit, almighty power, or the law of God within. Again, that's a frequent early Christian expression, as well as the word of God within. All of these are very important. But I know among other Christians I speak to that they don't even perhaps see this, or, or it's something just sort of on the side. It's not something within us. They're much more focused on what their particular denomination is teaching as to the outward rules and regulations and foci of their own denomination. Henry, I'll just point out briefly that in volume three of the works of Fox, Edward Burroughs' introduction, he has a whole page of, and so we ceased from, elements. And Schuwen gives it one phrase, learn to cease from all those teachers without. It would be edifying for anyone to go read that entire introduction in volume three of the works of Fox. I also would strongly encourage people to read that introduction more than one, actually, I have. It's a very powerful introduction. It's from a different angle for a different reason. But yes, that's a very important passage to read, that preface to volume three of the eight-volume works of George Fox. Okay. And these outward religious teachers, worldly religious teachers, also endeavor to demolish and destroy the word of God and the law of God within, under the pretense of directing you to a more certain word in law outside, namely the Holy Scriptures, which contain diverse words, precepts, and commandments, etc., spoken by holy men, to whom the word of the Lord came, that's the word of God, that word which was before the words existed. And by this word and spirit of God that came to them and existed and was in them, they were moved to speak them those words. And that word of God is greater than the words. I'm going to read this whole sentence again from where we left off there. And these nominal Christian worldly teachers endeavor to demolish and destroy the word of God and the law of God within, under the pretense of directing you to a more certain word of God and law without, namely the Holy Scriptures, which Holy Scriptures contain diverse various words, precepts, and commandments, etc., spoken by these holy men. To whom the word of the Lord came, capital W, word of the Lord came, which word of the Lord existed before the words existed in the Bible. And by this word of God and spirit of God that came to them and existed in them, they were moved to then speak them. And that word of the Lord, that word of God is greater than the words in the Bible. This is a very important passage that gets said by so many other early friends that it can't be ignored because the focus of friends, first friends, was on this word of God within, this light of Christ within. Having that illumination, that illuminator within is greater 
than what they said in words that they wrote down. The words they wrote down are in union with what was in them, but the focus is on the original source. And this is the focus of the first friends and traditional friends, that word of God within, that light within. Okay, let's continue. And until you know, until you experience a degree of that same word and spirit within yourself, you can neither truly understand nor obey the words in the Bible or the holy precepts and exhortations that proceeded from that word of God. That indeed, that word of the Lord, that word of God indeed, being the original cause, root, and ground, from where all the good words and good works that ever sprang up in the heart of mankind proceeded. Is this clear? Because this is such an important point, and it's so important, I mean, because this is going to permeate everything we say throughout the rest of this work. Um, I would say that when you know, you experience the Spirit of God within you, that it transforms your heart. And so if there are people in the religious world that have almost a fetish, it seems, for obedience and submission, but if they don't know who they're submitting to, <laughs> and if they don't have the heart that the Spirit gives, then it's not true obedience, but they think it is. And it's like, what is the heart that the Spirit produces within us? It's infinite love, right? It's infinitely kind. It's infinitely you know, gentle. It's infinitely compassionate. So if we do anything, St. Paul says, if we do everything, but we don't have that heart of God within us, that agape love, then it's worthless. It's even detrimental. So having the heart of God through experiencing God that he gives us is paramount. It's vital. Without it, the rest doesn't matter. <laughs> you can have all the knowledge, all the spiritual and doctrine and truths you think. But if you don't have the Spirit of God, it does you nor other people any good. <laughs> but when you have the heart of God and the Spirit of God from the Spirit of God, then that's what's paramount. So many Christians, perhaps the great majority, call the Bible the Word of God. And early friends and traditional friends have never called the Bible the Word of God. The Bible are the words written down by those who had the Word of God come to them and to which they listened and obeyed, and then wrote down those words. To understand those words that were written down, you need to have some degree, some measure of that same word and spirit within thyself, in order to really understand what's being said. I know in the Bible studies in years, there are just as many interpretations as there are people at times. What was it that those original writers wanted to express? They wanted to get something across to their readers, to their hearers. I read something in the year 1640, I think, yeah, 1640, perhaps 30% of men in England could read, 30%. So it was what you heard. And to really get the right meaning, you need to have that same word of God. Word is not the right word for talking about the Word of God, but that utterance of God, God speaking to you, is what we're talking about. That's God expressing himself. That's God, that inward Word of God. Henry, you know, if you talk about the different faith traditions, 
the uh, NIV, when it was prepared or translated or developed, they had a group of individuals that worked on it that included Anglican, Assemblies of God, Baptist Brethren, Christian Reformed, Church of Christ, Evangelical Free, Lutheran, Mennonite, Methodist, Nazarene, Presbyterian, Wesleyan, and other churches. And when you read the introduction in, in the, to it, they referred to the scriptures, the Bible is the word of God. And I guess a question that I want to pose is, it seems like that's almost unique to friends about not calling the Bible the word of God. It seems like almost every denomination I've encountered will use that language. And I was wondering if that is unique to friends. Let me say something there. I've had an interest in early Christianity for a long time, most half my life at least. And nowhere in early Christian writings have I ever read so far that I can recall anywhere where it refers to any of the writings of the Bible as the word of God. Obviously, it's there in all Protestant churches, as far as I know, as well as in the Catholic Church. So my feeling is that somewhere, perhaps in the Middle Ages or whenever, that's when at some point the Bible began to be called the Word of God. But that wasn't the understanding of early Christians. The Word of God was something that was within you. It's unfortunate that we translate that Greek word logos as word because it very rarely ever gets translated or should be translated as word. When it got translated into Latin, originally it was translated by the word sermo, S-E-R-M-O, which gives us our English word sermon. Sermo meant a talk or a speech most often, which is what that Greek word also meant, God speaking to someone. And later on, it was then translated in Latin, not as sermo, but as verbum. W-E-R-B-U-M, which is a word related to sermo, but it most often means a word. So we follow that unfortunate digression into a somewhat misunderstanding. I can also say not only the NIV, I know this is also true of other Bible translations. The uh, Revised Standard Version, too, had a number of various denominations involved, including a Quaker, Henry Cadbury. I don't want to get off on this whole side topic, although it is an important topic. But friends clearly focused on this, early friends. And there may have been others, much smaller groups as well throughout the centuries that realized what the real word of God was. God speaking is his speech, his talk within us is the whole focus, the object of our faith. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 10, 8. Maybe I should go to that. I may have talked about this recently here. I don't recall if it was in this group. But let me just quickly look that up because this is a point to really... Uh, While you're looking that up, sometimes I use the word voice instead of word. Yes, that's a but, synonym. And early friends also use that word too. That's voice, light. These are all yes. related. That's right. That's right, John. Even then, I note that when God illuminates our heart, it's not always in words. He's right. transforming our heart right. into the rivers of life and love and so on. <laughs> so okay. sometimes it's not words. Sometimes it's a prompting, a leading. Sometimes you just know things and you're knower, <laughs> as some people say. But he's always leading us into the infinite fruit of the spirit. He's always leading us into infinite truths. Right, right. Okay, and I'm starting on verse 6 in chapter 10 of Romans. 
I'm reading the new revised standard version from verse 6. But the righteousness that comes from faith says, quote, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. I'm going to translate this a little bit different. This is not the word logos. This is the word rhema, which also means word or more than a word too. The word is near you. It's on your lips and it's in your heart. That is the subject matter of faith that we proclaim. That is the subject matter that we proclaim. You miss that in a lot of translations. That is the matter of what we proclaim. And that is the basic matter, is this word of God, what you find in early Christianity, early Christian writings. It should be something that should be out there all the time. And also remember that the Bible, so-called, did not even exist when Paul wrote that. Right. So he couldn't have been talking about the Bible. The prophets, when the word of God spoke to them, it certainly wasn't the Bible because it didn't exist. And as you said, back in those days, a lot of people were probably illiterate. And people learn, like you say, by talking, by listening. There's that comment at the very beginning of Revelation in the very first verse, which indicates that this writing that we call the book of Revelation, it wasn't that people could go out and get a copy of this and read it because everything was handwritten and it would have been expensive for anyone to buy one or have it made. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his slaves what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And this is where he says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time near. So obviously, someone in a local house church would have a copy of this and would be reading this to the others assembled there because they wouldn't have a copy of this. Most of them wouldn't be able to read anyway. It was a similar kind of situation, maybe less so in the 17th century. Okay, let me get back to chewing here. I'm going to read that sentence over again. And until you know, until you experience a degree of the same word, capital W, and spirit within yourself, you can neither truly understand or obey the words of the Bible or the holy precepts and exhortations that proceeded from it, from that word of God. That word of God, indeed, being the original cause root and ground from which, from where, all the good words and good works that ever sprang up in the heart of mankind proceeded from, whether it's in the Bible or anywhere else. It's interesting when you read early Christian writings of the first two, three hundred years, or even longer, where most of the same books were in the various churches in the Mediterranean area, but occasionally there'd be some that weren't in one church but in another, but oftentimes, or at least I've seen this several times, where a writer would say, for anyone who accepts in this particular book, such and such book, where it says blah, 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 they knew that not every church in every Roman Greek city 
might have that book or accept what was in there because there was a lot of disputes over whether Second Peter should be included or not, and then other works should be involved. I think I may have mentioned it wasn't until the Council of Trent in the 1500s that the Catholic Church finally decided on which books of the Bible they considered to be canonical. Canonical goes back to a Greek word kanon, which is the word for a reed, or what we would think of as a yardstick, so that these books of the Bible these are the canonical books. These are the books that we can look at as a yardstick to measure anything else by. When Luther came on the scene, he didn't like the book of James, the, the epistle, the letter of James, so he took it out. He threw it out of his Bible. Later, Lutherans put it back in. I don't know if most of you perhaps may or may not have heard of the word bibliolatry. That's a form of idolatry of looking at the Bible, worshiping the Bible as greater or as great as the source for the books of the Bible, as we're talking about here. It may be a subtle distinction, but it's an important distinction because someone like Robert Barclay, early Quaker, and also George Fox and others said, if you have the same spirit of Christ in you, and you are aware of it, you're obeying it, and, and God is speaking to you, that you are hearing the voice of God, what canst thou say? What can you write down that is as spiritual as what was written in the books of the Bible? Oftentimes, I put down a little phrase from Francis Haugill, another very important early friend who wrote some powerful works. In his last letter and testament to his daughter Abigail, he says, read Holy Scripture and books, because he understood, like Barclay and others, that you can have quite serious, deep spiritual understandings in those works. But you need that same Word of God in you to understand what's being written there. Otherwise, you're going to end up in heaps and piles with all sorts of different interpretations and understandings of the Bible. I just think of all the commentaries I have and how a number of them just don't agree on things. You begin to just want to throw up your hands at times as to how they interpret things. But uh... Henry, what they just said may be a good lead into the question that's going through my mind. And it has to do with what you've been sharing tonight. It also alludes to what Conrad shared. But, you know, as we look at the typical Protestant Bible or, or Bibles, there were so many early Christian writings, but only so many of them made it into the Bible. And those that did, you know, start off with a decision that was made around the 400. So I guess there are two thoughts going through my mind then. To me, how we view the Bible has a tremendous impact on how we understand it or translate it. And when we look at so many different Bibles out there, if the translators or the scholars saw it as, in other words, the Word of God, it's almost like being in a building and looking at the scenery through a different window. So with that being said, I guess what I thought, I didn't know if friends had a thought how conservative friends should approach maybe the study of Scripture. What is really the best translation or what may be the most accurate or what would be the best way to approach it as we look at all the different translations that are offered. Because like, you know, I mentioned NIV, I think it's very much the, the scholars there saw it as capital word. And to me, that maybe gives it a little different perspective than someone that saw it differently if they were translating it. Well, in the 1600s, you know, the new modern translation was the King James Version of the Bible from 16, what was it, 11? 16, 16, I get 
I get that date mixed up with the death of William Shakespeare, <laughs> but that was the new modern translation. It was a very good translation for its time and what they had available to them in terms of ancient Greek manuscripts. However, there were points where more ability would point out a mistake or misunderstanding within that King James Version. Those of you who know me, I get very upset over some translations today, especially when I see it just cannot translate it this way because it's very clear that the Greek is not that hard to translate it. And yet it gets translated that way, either sometimes just out of tradition because someone before them translated it incorrectly and they continue to do that, or their own denomination might feel very uncomfortable about a particular translation because it might not be quite in alignment with whatever their system of beliefs is. Back to translations, I do see some benefits. We look at some of the more recent scholarship on translations in terms of looking at lexical, grammatical details, considering such things as archaeological understanding, linguistic understanding. I think there's been so much to scholarship, maybe insights or discoveries in recent years, you know, in tools that we have now and access to information through the internet and everything else that, that may have been around. But I think it's brought so much to the fingertip of scholars in terms of being able to, to understand certain things. And that's why it's important, I think, as a friend that we know what the, the true word is so that we can then read and study scripture appropriately. Yes. Let me go back. For those of you here who have followed or been involved in some of the Bible studies I've done focusing on the original Greek language of the New Testament that it was written in, whenever I sent out notes for those individual sessions, I pointed out a couple of passages, and I'm going to show that now because I always ended this or at the beginning of each of my weekly footnotes because I think it's such a different kind of understanding. This is from Origen, one of the most famous early Christian writers from the end of the second to beginning of the third century. In later years, he got into a lot of trouble after he passed away because he belonged to a school of Christian thought in Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria was the second largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome, and it had a large Jewish population and a large Christian population. The school that he belonged to was founded by someone named Clement of Alexandria. What he says here, I think, would be condemned by a lot of modern Christian Protestant churches. I think it's important to say it anyway. He says here in talking about the Gospels, I do not condemn the evangelists, that is the Gospel writers, if to serve their mystical view, they have in some way rearranged actual historical events in an order than that in which they occurred, so as to tell of what happened in one place as if it had happened in another, or of what happened at a certain time as if it had happened at another time and to introduce into what was said in a certain way some variations of their own. And this is the important part coming up. For they propose to speak the truth both pneumatically, spiritually, and somatically, literally, insofar as possible. And where this was not possible, to prefer the pneumatic, the spiritual, to the somatic, the literal. Finally, they often preserved the pneumatic the spiritual truth, with a capital T, in what some might call a somatic, literal falsehood. These are fighting words today in many Christian churches. 
but this is what was written. And he was never condemned for this particular understanding here, even though he got condemned later by more literalist Christians. A hundred years after he lived, a much more literalist school developed in terms of biblical understanding in the city of Antioch. And that took precedence for centuries in Christianity. But this is what was written here sometime between 226 and 232. They often preserved the spiritual truth and what some might call a literal falsehood. Isaac Pennington, an early friend, in one of his letters to someone he was speaking on in understanding the Bible, he wrote, in the end, that is, the goal of all words in the Bible is to bring men to the knowledge, to the experience of things beyond what words can utter. So, learn of, learn from the Lord to make a right use of the scriptures, which is by esteeming them in their right place and prizing that above them, which is above them. The word of God is above them. Again, in the end, the goal of all words is to bring men to the knowledge, that is, to the experience of things beyond what words can utter. So, learn of, learn for the Lord, make a use of the scriptures, which is by esteeming them in their right place and prizing that above them, which is above them. And the last short thing was a paraphrase of Barclay. I cannot find the original source, but I do remember the meaning of what he said in like one sentence. In reading a Bible passage, seek the spiritual signification, that is the spiritual meaning behind the words. That's what we need to look for. You can fight forever over the literalness, but you need to find what was being conveyed in those words. Any comment on this before I close this? I liken it to having a pitcher menu at a restaurant and the pitchers point to what the food will actually be like, hopefully, <laughs> truthfully, but you shouldn't eat the menu. Right. The menu points to the real thing. The real thing is Christ. Yes. The real thing is the spirit. And the Bible is meant to point to that, point to Christ so that you can experience him. Just like that menu is meant to point to the real food, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is Christ. But if people want to have a meal and eat the menu, they can try and do that, but it's not very beneficial. <laughs> well, here in Origin, I always keep on bringing up this major distinction between things that are inward and things that are outward. The outward is the literal. The inward is the spiritual. You know, and Paul said, the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. The outward letter, the letters, actual letters, that's the Greek word for letters of the alphabet, what things are written in kill but on the other hand the spirit behind them gives life or life giving i was surprised when interacting with a friend of mine who was very close to the new american standard bible and he said in his experience not just there but in most places that most biblical scholars would not consider submission to christ something they've ever done that it's an academic experience and they don't come at it as this is Lord and Savior. This is God speaking. This is an important point because this is why in George Fox's time, they were so opposed to the schools of divinity at Cambridge or Oxford or whatever. It's not much different today in somewhat different ways, but you can get totally lost in the academics and forget what it is you're really looking for. Even in the history of Christianity, history of Christianity became much more literalist 
much more focusing in on the Bible. And the same thing happened even with friends, the breakup of friends in the 19th century. I'm thinking of the Gurneyites became much more going back to the words of the Bible rather than the focus on the word of God within, whereas the, the Hicksites got so lost in the nebulous something, I can't even say. That's why conservatives have been trying to conserve what was originally there, if you read any of the works of John Wilbur. Anyway, let's get back to the text. So such outward, worldly, religious teachers have gone out, but God has not sent them. So people are not profited by them, but rather are despoiled by them. They've had that taken away from them. Despoiled at this time meant despoiled. To have all your property taken away, like legally, government says we're going to take everything away from you. But this is in a broader sense. They, these outward religious teachers, shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. They neither enter that kingdom of heaven themselves, nor do they allow those that would like to. This is a quotation from the Gospels. And under the name of being ministers of Christ, they are direct ministers of Antichrist. Antichrist, anti is a prefix that meant both opposed to, but also it meant a substitution for something. So they had ministers opposed to the true Christ, or they substitute a different Christ than the Christ that is the true Christ, that spirit of Christ within, the spirit of the Messiah. God's gift to mankind. From such people turn away and learn of the grace of God, which teaches one to reject ungodliness, etc., and to love the light, that illumination, and bring your deeds, your actions to it, and walk in it. Conduct yourself in that light of the Messiah. Thus, you will come to be a child of it and have the right to inherit to obtain the precious promises and possess and enjoy the glorious images which you have up until now only professed in words, heard and read of in the Holy Scriptures. Let me say one thing here. This paragraph we've just read is very important, but there is also one of his sections, I forget where it is, about section four or five where he talks about Scripture. So we will be going over some of the same stuff again in the future. When Christ was speaking about those who are shutting up the kingdom of heaven against men, I think he was talking about the Pharisees of his time in terms of what they were teaching. They wouldn't enter into that state of God themselves, that state of heaven, nor would they allow others to who would like to. But here, Shun is referring to his modern, of his time, ministers, Christian ministers. They never minced their words. They said exactly what they really felt, that this wasn't true Christianity that they were seeing and hearing in these other ministers. And the last few words here. Thus, you will come to inherit to obtain substance, inward substance, and soon be wiser than former outward worldly teachers. And from being a titular Christian, from being a Christian in name only, you will become a Christian indeed, an Israelite indeed, an inward spiritual Jew indeed, whose praise is from God and not from men. Comments, questions? Henry, I was thinking another thought going through my mind is, is we talk about scriptures and how faith groups, some of them see the scriptures as the word. 
and how friends see it is different. I think that can be a little bit misleading just to stop at that point with that statement because in Protestant traditions where you focus on the Trinity, I know people that even though they referred to the Bible as the Word of God, they also put a very high emphasis on the guidance of the Holy Spirit in their lives and see the Holy Spirit as their teacher and their guide, which in a way kind of brings it a little bit closer to friends because then they're not taking the written text or the translation they're using and putting as high an emphasis on it as it may sound when we just make the statement, as we just look at the concept of word uh, in the context of the religious society of friends. Right. These remind me of something Robert Bowie says in his apology, I believe, his defense of the truly Christian religion. An apology for the true Christian divinity in modern English would be translated as a defense of the truly Christian theology. That's the exact translation of the original Latin title of that word, a defense of the truly Christian theology. In his English, it was an apology for the true Christian divinity. But you need to remember words change over the centuries. In looking at the different denominations, the Catholic Church includes the deuterocanonical books as being inspired. And there are other books in some of the Eastern Orthodox churches that are not considered canonical in the West. But for them, they consider these particular books to be canonical. That's one important thing to realize. They all have a history as to how these books came to be considered canonical or not canonical. Go ahead, Conrad. I was just going to follow up on what George said, that I think that friends were the ones who, in the 17th century, rediscovered this direct presence of Christ within. But I think that other denominations have moved in that direction to some extent, because now they at least acknowledge what they call the personal relationship with Christ. Yeah which the professors of George Fox's day would have denied. They never used the term relationship. Any basic relationship, it was the fear of the Lord, not specifically in the sense of fear in the modern sense, which it also had, but fear in the sense of having this gobsmacking off for God and knowing relationship is one of a creature to this overwhelming divine power we call God the Father. That was so important. That's why in so many friends' writings, they talk about fearing the Lord. But it's misunderstood in modern English if you don't realize what's really being said there. The other couple of points I wanted to mention, George was just saying, Robert Barclay, again, in the apology, somewhere mentions how even though people might, in whatever denomination, might get it wrong because of their outward understanding, their conduct really matters in how they are really unconsciously, subconsciously in union with God. So they are really trying very hard to follow and do the will of the Lord. That's what matters. So that even though they may believe with Catholics or Anglicans, uh, high Anglicans, the, the communion for a Catholic or Orthodox, you have, you know, transubstantiation that this bread and wine are the actual body of Christ. And they do mean that physically. An individual may actually have that experience of Christ at that time, not realizing it. physical matter has nothing to do with it. As friends here are saying, that what really matters is the spirit and coming in contact with that. I wanted to mention that as to what uh, George was saying about following the spirit in some of these churches. That's what really matters. 
I can recall a number of years ago when I was really beginning to become interested in looking more and more at the original Greek language of the New Testament. In one night in bed, I had begun to read Quaker works at this time. This was 30 years ago. I just realized this thing that I'm saying, oh my gosh, I'm reading these words, trying to figure out the Greek friends are telling me in these early friends' works is what really matters is the word of God behind these words of God that are in these books of the Bible. I just remember that night because I was reading in bed night and looking at some Greek text in the New Testament and just saying, oh, it was a kind of confusing moment, but it became much clearer. Okay, we're going to stop here. But as I said, this last long paragraph we just went through is so important, but we will get back to it when we get to the section on scripture. I spoke briefly this week in a group, a Quaker group, about being led by the Spirit and following the Spirit. I seemed to trigger quite a reaction <laughs> with faith and practice being quoted about, consider, friend, that you might be wrong. <laughs> and religionists sometimes have the same question for me. is like, how do I know that it's the Spirit of God or not? How do I know I'm not mistaken, that it's not coming from myself, or I might be fooled or deluded by a bad spirit? And I said, well, I measure by the fruit of the Spirit. And God's fruit is infinitely pure and leads me to do things infinitely unselfish, that I'm not self-motivated by gain of some kind. In fact, they're pure sacrifices. And so that is one of the ways of measuring, because we could be mistaken, we could be deluded, because some people are, but we measure by the fruit of the Spirit as listed in Galatians 5, and as we know from experience. The whole understanding of Jesus' constant focus on repentance, right from Mark, the earliest that we know of all the four canonical Gospels, when we just read it, I, I go back and back to some of these same passages, but uh, they are essential. And this is right at the beginning of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Let me just translate it. After John the Baptist was in prison, Jesus came out into Galilee, preaching the gospel, the good news of God, and saying that the time is fulfilled, the time has come, the time is now, and the kingdom of God is one that is near. Repent, that is, transform your ways of thinking and put your trust in this good news, that the kingdom of God is one that is near. The kingdom of God is within you as it says as a correct translation of Luke's chapter 17, verse 20. Repentance is not in the modern sense of repentance, but it's a transformation of your way of thinking, your whole mindset, and your way of speaking and acting in accordance to that change where you're turning to God away from the world and focusing on hearing the Lord, listening to the voice of God within you. So any last comments, questions? I guess sometimes the religious they're thinking repentance is all about the intellect. I have to say this word repentance comes from a Latin word. And way back 1700 years ago, the earliest major Latin writer, Tertullian, Tertullianus, commented somewhere in one of his writings that it was a mistranslation of the Greek into Latin from the Greek for the word that we now get as repent because it really meant to change, to transform your way of thinking, your mindset. That has been such a major translation problem ever since, because we think of repentance so often mostly as feeling regret, sorrow, remorse for all that we've done. That's part of it. That's in that meaning. 
but it's beyond that because the root of that word, the N-O in metanoia is the Greek noun, is the word for a, one's whole way of thinking, one's mindset. And Jesus, when he gives that command, he's saying, you must transform your mindset. That's the first thing you do. The two basic doctrines of Christ that our Messiah was teaching was this repentance and the kingdom of God, otherwise known as eternal life, the kingdom of heaven, life with a capital L. These two were at the very ground level of what Jesus was teaching. So often the parables, the word parable in Greek means a comparison. He's always comparing the kingdom of God is like something. The kingdom of God is like this. A man went out. Or kingdom of God is like a seed. Or this and that. There are all these comparisons comparing what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like. The word heaven is used there as a euphemism for God because so many Jews, Jewish Christians at that earliest stage were still maybe uncomfortable of using that word God out loud. So they substitute the word heaven for it. But then we get a whole different problem of understanding hmm. kingdom. And even the word kingdom did not mean kingdom in the modern sense. Very rarely did it mean like a country. It meant a state like the state of God. That's a state of being, a state of the domain, the dominion of God. We can talk about this more when we get to the chapter on scripture. So, okay, I'm going to stop the recording then. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The introduction and credits were read by Chip Thomas. The quote from William Penn in our introduction was paraphrased from his book, No Cross, No Crown, page 324 of the 1842 Harvey and Darton version. We welcome feedback on this and any of our podcast episodes. Please email us at oymconservative at gmail.com.